0: Section eighteen of Catherine de Medici by Honor de Balzac, translated by Catherine Prescott Warmly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two: The Secrets of the Ruggieri. One, the court under Charles the Ninth. Between eleven o'clock and midnight, toward the end of October, fifteen seventy-three, two Italians, Florentines and brothers, Albert de Gondi duke de Retz, and Albert de Gondy, Duc de Retz, a marshal of France, and Charles de Gondy-Lecteur, Grand Master of the Robes of Charles the Ninth, were sitting on the roof of a house in the Rue Saint-Honor at the edge of a gutter. This gutter was one of those stone channels which in former days were constructed below the roofs of houses to receive the rainwater, discharging it at regular intervals through those long gargoyles carved in the shape fantastic animals with gaping mouths. In spite of the zeal with which our present general pulls down and demolishes venerable buildings, there still existed many of these projecting gutters until, quite recently, an ordinance of the police as to water conduits compelled them to disappear. But even so, a few of these carved gargoyles still remain, chiefly in the quartier Saint-Antoine, where low rents and values hinder the building of new stories under the eaves of the roofs it certainly seems strange that two personages invested with such important offices should be playing the part of cats but whosoever will burrow into the historic treasures of those days when personal interests jostled and thwarted each other around the throne till the whole political centre of france was like a skein of tangled thread will readily understand that the two florentines were cats indeed and very much in their places in a gutter, their devotion to the person of the queen mother Catherine de Medici, who had brought them to the court of France and foisted them into their high offices, compelled them not to recoil before any of the consequences of their intrusion. But to explain how and why these courtiers were thus perched, it is necessary to relate a scene which had taken place an hour earlier, not far from this very gutter, in that beautiful brown room of the Louvre. All that now remains to us of the apartments of Henri II, in which, after supper, the courtiers had been paying court to the two queens, Catherine de' Medici, and Elizabeth of Austria, and to their son and husband, King Charles IX. In those days, the majority of the burghers and great lords supped at six, or seven o'clock, but the more refined and elegant supped at eight, or even nine. This repast was the dinner of today many persons erroneously believe that etiquette was invented by louis the fourteenth on the contrary it was introduced into france by catherine de medici who made it so severe that the connetable de montmorency had more difficulty in obtaining permission to enter the court of the louvre on horseback than in winning his sword moreover that unheard of distinction was granted to him only on account of his great age etiquette which was it is true slightly relaxed under the first two Bourbon kings, took an oriental form under the great monarch, for it was introduced from the Eastern Empire, which derived it from Persia. In 1573, few persons had the right to enter the courtyard of the Louvre with their servants and torches. Under Louis XIV, the coaches of none but dukes and peers were allowed to pass under the peristyle. Moreover, the cost of obtaining entrance after supper to the royal apartments was very heavy. The Marcal de Retz, whom we have just seen perched on a gutter, offered on one occasion a thousand crowns of that day, six thousand francs of our present money, to the usher of the king's cabinet, to be allowed to speak to Henri III, on a day when he was not on duty. To a historian who knows the truth, it is laughable to see the well-known picture of the courtyard at Blois, in which the artist has introduced a courtier on horseback. On the present occasion, therefore, none but the most eminent personages in the kingdom were in the royal apartments. The queen, Elizabeth of Austria, and her mother-in-law, Catherine de' Medici, were seated together on the left of the fireplace. On the other side sat the king, buried in an armchair, affecting a lethargy consequent on digestion, for he had just supped like a prince returned from hunting. Possibly he was seeking to avoid conversation in presence of so many persons, who were spies upon his thoughts? The courtiers stood erect and uncovered at the end of the room. Some talked in a low voice, others watched the king, awaiting the bestowal of a look or a word. Occasionally one was called up by the queen-mother, who talked with him for a few moments. Another risked saying a word to the king, who replied with either a nod or a brief sentence. A German nobleman, the comte de Salen, stood at the corner of the fireplace behind the young queen the granddaughter of charles v whom he had accompanied into france near to her on a stool sat her lady of honour the comtesse de fiesque Astrozzi, strozzi and a relation of catherine de medici the beautiful madame de Sauve, a descendant of jacques Coeur, mistress of the king navarre then of the king of poland and lastly of the duc d'alencon had been invited to supper and she stood like the rest of the court her husband's rank, that of Secretary of State, giving her no right to be seated. Behind these two ladies stood the two Gondis, talking to them. They alone of this dismal assembly were smiling. Albert Gondi, now Duc de Reis, Marshal of France, and gentleman of the bedchamber, had been deputed to marry the queen by proxy at Spire. In the first line of courtiers nearest to the king stood the marechal de Tavannes, who was present on court business. Neufville de villeroy one of the ablest bankers of the period who laid the foundation of the great house of that name birago and Civerni, gentlemen of the queen-mother who knowing her preference for her son henri the brother whom charles the ninth regarded as an enemy attached themselves especially to him then strozzi catherine's cousin and finally a number of great lords among them the old cardinal de lorraine and his nephew the young duc de guise or held at a distance by the king and his mother. These two leaders of the Holy Alliance, and later of the League, founded in conjunction with Spain a few years earlier, affected the submission of servants who were only waiting an opportunity to make themselves masters. Catherine and Charles IX watched each other with close attention. At this gloomy court, as gloomy as the room in which it was held, each individual had his or her own reasons for being sad or thoughtful. The young Queen Elizabeth was a prey to the tortures of jealousy and could ill disguise them, though she smiled upon her husband, whom she passionately adored. Good and pious woman that she was, Marie Touchet, the only mistress Charles the ever had, and to whom he was loyally faithful, had lately returned from the Chateau de Fayet in Dauphin, whither she had gone to give birth to a child. She brought back to Charles the a son his only son charles de valois first comte d'Auvergne, and afterwards duc de Goulême. the poor queen in addition to the mortification of her abandonment now endured the pang of knowing that her rival had borne a son to her husband while she had brought him only a daughter and these were not her only troubles and disillusions for catherine de medici who seemed her friend in the first instance now out of policy favored her betrayal Preferring to serve the mistress rather than the wife of the king, for the following reason: when Charles the Ninth openly avowed his passion for Marie Touchet, Catherine showed favor to the girl in the interests of her own desire for domination. Marie Touchet, who was very young when brought to court, came at an age when all the noblest sentiments are predominant. She loved the king for himself alone. Frightened at the fate to which ambition had led the Duchess de Valentinois, better known as Diane de Poitiers, she dreaded the Queen Mother, and greatly preferred her simple happiness to grandeur. Perhaps, she thought, that lovers as young as the King, and herself, could never struggle successfully against the Queen Mother. As the daughter of Jean Tuchet, Sieur de Beauvais, and Quillard, she was born between the burgher class and the lower nobility. She had none of the inborn ambitions of the Piseleux and saint girls of rank who battled for their families with the hidden weapons of love. Marie Touchet, without family or friends, spared Catherine de' Medici all antagonism with her son's mistress. The daughter of a great house would have been her rival. Jean Touchet, the father, one of the finest wits of the time, a man to whom poets dedicated their works, wanted nothing at court. Marie, a young girl without connections, intelligent and well-educated, and also simple and artless, whose desires would probably never be aggressive to the royal power, suited the Queen Mother admirably. In short, she made the Parliament recognise the son to whom Marie Tuchet had just given birth in the month of April, and she allowed him to take the title of Comte d'Auvergne, assuring Charles the Ninth that she would leave the boy her personal property, the counties of Auvergne, and Laraguay. At a later period, Marguerite de Valois, Queen of Navarre, contested this legacy after she was Queen of France, and the Parliament annulled it. But later still, Louis Thirteenth, out of respect for the Valois blood, indemnified the Comte d'Auvergne by the gift of the duchy of Agoulême. Catherine had already given Marie Touchet, who asked nothing, the manor of Belleville, on a estate close to Vincennes, which carried no title, and thither she went whenever the king hunted and spent the night at the castle. It was in this gloomy fortress that Charles the Ninth passed the greater part of his last years, ending his life there, according to some historians, as Louis the Twelfth had ended his. The queen-mother kept close watch upon her son. All the occupations of his personal life, outside of politics, were reported to her. The king had begun to look upon his mother as an enemy but the kind intentions she expressed toward his son diverted his suspicions for a time. Catherine's motives in this matter were never understood by Queen Elizabeth, who, according to Brantome, was one of the gentlest queens that ever reigned, who never did harm or even gave pain to anyone, and was careful to read her prayer book secretly. But this single-minded princess began at last to see the precipices yawning around the throne, a dreadful discovery which might indeed have made her quail it was some such remembrance no doubt that led her to say to one of her ladies after the death of the king in reply to her condolence that she had no son and could not therefore be regent and queen-mother ah i thank god that i have no son i know well what would have happened my poor son would have been despoiled and wronged like the king my husband and i should have been the cause of it god had mercy on the state he has done all for the best. This princess, whose portrait Pointon thinks he draws by saying that her complexion was as beautiful and delicate as the ladies of her suite were charming and agreeable, and that her figure was fine, though rather short, was of little account at her own court. Suffering from a double grief, her saddened attitude added another gloomy tone to a scene which most young queens, less cruelly injured, might have enlivened. The pious Elizabeth proved at this crisis that the qualities which are the shining glory of women in the ordinary ways of life can be fatal to a sovereign. A princess able to occupy herself with other things besides her prayer book might have been a useful helper to Charles the Ninth, who found no prop to lean on, either in his wife or in his mistress. The Queen Mother, as she sat there in that brown room, was closely observing the King who during supper had exhibited a boisterous good humor which he felt to be assumed in order to mask some intention against her this sudden gaiety contrasted too vividly with the struggle of mind he endeavored to conceal by his eagerness in hunting and by an almost maniacal toil at his forge where he spent many hours in hammering iron and catherine was not deceived by it without being able even to guess which of the statesmen about the king was employed to prepare or negotiate it for Charles the Ninth contrived to mislead his mother's spies, Catherine felt no doubt whatever that some scheme for her overthrow was being planned. The unlooked-for presence of Tavannes, who arrived at the same time as Strozzi, whom she herself had summoned, gave her food for thought. Strong in the strength of her political combination, Catherine was above the reach of circumstances, but she was powerless against some hidden violence. As many persons are ignorant of the actual state of public affairs, then so complicated by the various parties that distracted France, the leaders of which had each their private interests to carry out, it is necessary to describe, in a few words, the perilous game in which the Queen Mother was now engaged. To show Catherine de' Medici in a new light is in fact the root and stock of our present history. Two words explain this woman so curiously interesting to study. A woman whose influence has left such deep impressions upon France. These words are power and astrology. Exclusively ambitious, Catherine de' Medici had no other passion than that of power. Superstitious and fatalistic, like so many superior men, she had no sincere belief except in occult sciences. Unless this double mainspring is known, The conduct of Catherine de' Medici will remain forever misunderstood. As we picture her faith in judicial astrology, the light will fall upon two personages who are in fact the philosophical subjects of this study. There lived a man for whom Catherine cared more than for any of her children. His name was Cosmo Ruggiero. He lived in a house belonging to her, the Hôtel de Soissons. She made him her supreme advisor. It was his duty to tell her whether the stars ratified the advice and judgment of her ordinary counsellors. Certain remarkable antecedents warranted the power which Cosmo Ruggiero retained over his mistress to her last hour. One of the most learned men of the 16th century was physician to Lorenzo de' Medici, Duke d'Urbino, Catherine's father. This physician was called Ruggiero the Elder. Vecchio Ruggiero and Roger Lossi- and Roger L'Ancien in the French authors who have written on alchemy. To distinguish him from his two sons, Lorenzo Ruggiero, called the great by cabalistic writers, and Cosmo Ruggiero, Catherine's astrologer, also called Roger by several French historians. In France it was the custom to pronounce the name in general as Ruggieri. Ruggiero the elder was so highly valued by the Medici that the two dukes, Cosmo and Lorenzo, stood godfathers to his two sons. He cast, in concert with the famous mathematician Basilio, the horoscope of Catherine's nativity, in his official capacity as mathematician, astrologer, and physician to the house of Medici, three offices which are often confounded. At the period of which we write, the occult sciences were studied with an ardour that may surprise the incredulous minds of our own age, which is supremely analytical. Perhaps such minds may find in this historical sketch the dawn, or rather the germ, of the positive sciences which have flowered in the 19th century, though without the poetic grandeur given to them by the audacious seekers of the 16th, who, instead of using them solely for mechanical industries, magnified art and fertilized thought by their means. The protection universally given to occult sciences by the sovereigns of those days was justified by the noble creations of many inventors, who, starting in quest of the great work, the so-called Philosopher's Stone, attained to astonishing results. At no period were the sovereigns of the world more eager for the study of these mysteries. The Fuggers of Augsburg, in whom all modern Luculluses will recognise their princes, and all bankers their masters, were gifted with powers of calculation it would be difficult to surpass. Well, those practical men who loaned the funds of all Europe to the sovereigns of the 16th century as deeply in debt as the kings of the present day, those illustrious guests of Charles V were sleeping partners in the crucibles of Paracelsus. At The beginning of the 16th century, Ruggiero the Elder was the head of that secret university from which issued the Cardin, the Nostradamuses, and the Agrippas, all in their turn physicians of the House of Valois, also the astronomers, astrologers, and alchemists, who surrounded the princes of Christendom, and were more especially welcomed and protected in France by Catherine de' Medici. In the nativity drawn by Basilio and Ruggiero the Elder, the principal events of Catherine's life Were foretold with a correctness which is quite disheartening for those who deny the power of occult science. This horoscope predicted the misfortunes which during the siege of Florence imperiled the beginning of her life. Also her marriage with the son of the king of France, the unexpected succession of that son to his father's throne, the birth of her children, their number, and the fact that three of her sons would be kings in succession, that two of her daughters would be queens, that all of them were destined to die without posterity. This prediction was so fully realised that many historians have assumed that it was written after the events. It is well known that Nostradamus took to the Chateau de Chaumont, where Catherine went after the conspiracy of La Renaudie, a woman who possessed the faculty of reading the future. Now, during the reign of Francois II, while the Queen had with her four sons, all young and in good health, And before the marriage of her daughter Elizabeth with Philip II, King of Spain, or that of her daughter Marguerite with Henri de Bourbon, King of Navarre, afterward Henri IV, Nostradamus and this woman reiterated the circumstances formerly predicted in the famous Nativity. This woman, who was no doubt gifted with second sight, and who belonged to the great school of seekers of the great work, though the particulars of her life and name are lost to history, stated that the last crowned child would be assassinated. Having placed the Queen Mother in front of a magic mirror, in which was reflected a wheel, and on several spokes of which were the faces of her children, the sorceress set the wheel revolving, and Catherine counted the number of revolutions which it made. Each revolution was for each son one year of his reign. Henri the Fourth was also put upon the wheel, which then made twenty-four rounds, and the woman, some historians have said it was a man, told the frightened Queen that Henri de Bourbon would be king of France, and reign that number of years. From that time forth, Catherine de' Medici vowed a mortal hatred to the man whom she knew would succeed the last of her Valois sons, who was to die assassinated. Anxious to know what her own death would be, she was warned to be aware of Saint-Germain. Supposing therefore, that she would be either put to death or imprisoned in a chateau de Saint-Germain, she would never so much as put her foot there although that residence was far more convenient for her political plans owing to its proximity to Paris than the other castles to which she retreated with the king during the Troubles. When she was taken suddenly ill, a few days after the murder of the Duc de Guise at Blois, she asked the name of the bishop who came to assist her. Being told it was Saint-Germain, she cried out, I am dead, and did actually die on the morrow. Having moreover lived the exact number of years, given to her by all her horoscopes. These predictions, which were known to the Cardinal de Lorraine, who regarded them as witchcraft, were now in process of realisation. Francois II had reigned his two revolutions of the wheel, and Charles IX was now making his last turn. If Catherine said the strange words which history has attributed to her, when her son Henri stood for Poland, "You will soon return, they must be set down to her faith in Occult Science, and not to the intention of poisoning Charles the Ninth, many other circumstances corroborated Catherine's faith in the Occult Sciences. The night before the tournament at which Henry the Second was killed, Catherine saw the fatal blow in a dream. Her astrological council, then composed of Nostradamus and the two Ruggieri, had already predicted to her the death of the King. History has recorded the efforts made by Catherine. To persuade her husband not to enter the lists, the prognostic and the dream produced by the prognostic were verified. The memoirs of the day relate another fact that was no less singular. A courier who announced the victory of Montcontour arrived in the night after riding with such speed that he killed three horses. The queen-mother was awakened to receive the news to which she replied, "I knew it already, in fact, as Brantome relates. She had told of her son's triumph the evening before, and narrated several circumstances of the battle. The astrologer of the House of Bourbon predicted that the youngest of all the princes descended from Saint-Louis, the son of Antoine de Bourbon, would ascend the throne of France. This prediction, related by Sully, was accomplished in the precise terms of the horoscope, which led Henri IV to say that by dint of lying, these people sometimes hit the truth, however that may be. If most of the great minds of the epoch believed in this vast science, called magic by the masters of judicial astrology and sorcery by the public, they were justified in doing so by the fulfilment of horoscopes. It was for the use of Cosmo Ruggiero, a mathematician, astronomer, and astrologer, that Catherine de Medici erected the tower behind the Al Aube, all that now remains of the Hotel de Soissons. Cosmo Ruggiero possessed, like confessors, a mysterious influence, the possession of which, like them again, sufficed him. He cherished an ambitious thought superior to all vulgar ambitions. This man, whom dramatists and romance writers depict as a juggler, owned the rich abbey of Somae in Lower Brittany, and refused many high ecclesiastical dignities. The gold which the superstitious passions of the age poured into his coffers sufficed his secret enterprise, and the queen's hand stretched above his head, preserved every hair of it from danger. End of section 18.